I can't even use that as an outtake for legal reasons. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Double Reel, the podcast that caters to the refined tastes of the sophisticated film nerd. It's August 2021 and life is getting back to normal, but still a bit nerve-wracking. In the meantime, we're here to give you your regular fix of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction. Apologies if I sound like death. Um, I don't have COVID, but I, I might as well have because I feel like sin. But I'm happy to be here and get on with it. Great. We aim to provide an old school film goers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can go to the foyer at halftime to stock up on drinks and snacks. But stay off the pick and mix for the moment. There's no way that's COVID compliant. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 16. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month it's Walk the Line, the widely acclaimed film of the life and career of Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Forgotten, a Korean thriller on Netflix that you might not have heard of. Then we turn to The One That Got Away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 16, we're following the story of Tony Scott's unrealised project, Potsdamer Platz. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month features The Hitcher, the 2007 remake of the 80s exploitation classic. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 16, we discuss the films from our respective years of birth, best and worst. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Utza Sparta, uh, sorry if I've mispronounced that, my recommendation for your list of hidden gems is 1981's Ragtime. Directed by Milos Forman, the man who gave us Amadeus and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it flopped at the time but was well-reviewed and nominated for a lot of awards. Seemingly forgotten now and deserves another look. Thank you for the recommendation. People have been getting in touch about this month's Year of the Carpenter feature when we put it up on the socials. Uh, they live. Laura says, I love this film. Rona says, it's one of my favourite John Carpenter films. Christine liked it but said it was cheesy in parts. And Kathleen said, it was all about Rowdy Roddy Piper. My favourite line, I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. I'm here to kick bubblegum remake- and chew ass, and I'm all out of ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely on the blooper reel. <laughs> on our remake Hate Watch the Hitcher, Paul agrees with us. Shocking remake should never have happened, and Joe agrees. Lots of love for our classic this month, Walk the Line. Matthias says, I love it. Louis-Philippe says, one of my favourite films of all time. And Kevin, Progeta, and Gina all agree. Bob says, this is the film Joaquin Phoenix should have won his Oscar for. Mm-hmm. In our one that got away this month, Corrine says, I'd have loved to see this happen, and Damien and Lily agree. Hamad says, it would have been great if it had been like True Romance, less so Man on Fire, which was edited like a Bollywood film. A Tony Scott Bollywood film would be amazing, though, wouldn't it? Uh, I don't know how you can make Top Gun any more 
Bollywood without it actually being Bollywood. That's a good point. That's a very Bollywood film. It's literally just needing a translation into the Hindi language and nobody would notice the fucking difference. It surely is, yeah. <laughs> On our hidden gem Forgotten, Panini says, hadn't heard of this but sounds intriguing. We'll definitely add it to my watch list. Well, that's what we do it for. Whitney says, I love this movie. Johanna says, a unique plot and tons of twists, although sometimes to the point of absurdity. Left so many questions for me at the end. I Sorry, I know we're getting to it, but it's not a unique plot, and I'll tell you why in approximately 20 minutes. Very good. Thanks for all your messages, even the ones we couldn't read out. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. So first of all, news. What have you seen, James? Um, well, the big news this was uh, this month sorry, was uh, Scarlett Johansson. Um suing Disney because um, Black Widow's been released in a cinema release but it's also been put on Disney Plus and Premier Access and I don't think she's getting a cut of the earnings from that. So yeah, she's she basically feels that's suing, a breach of contract, isn't it? Yeah. Well, she's basically saying that not as many people are going to go and see it in the cinema because you can watch it at home and with that whole pandemic that's been going on, people are more likely to just kind of watch it at home and she's missing out on her cut of the, uh, the earnings. So I don't know how yeah, I feel about I mean, that one. To be honest, I mean, it, this one could run and run because this is this isn't going to be the first such incidents of this happening. I think, from what I've seen, I think the first thing is is that other other films that changed from a cinema first and then streaming, you know, traditional strategy that then changed to do some simultaneous streaming. They actually sat down and, and made some arrangements with people who were who had negotiated bonuses for the film. Yeah. So, and Scarlett Johansson is arguing that that didn't happen this time. And she, she's not saying she would have refused. She's actually she would have had loved, loved the opportunity to do that. She also claims to have some emails which show her saying, okay, if you're going to go streaming, what are we going to do about all the bonuses and everything? And, and then, and then saying, I oh, don't worry, we're not going to do that. Uh, and if that's true, then she has a, you, know, you could argue she has a bit of a case. Um, it's not like all these things, someone who's already a multimillionaire missing out on their extra multimillions. It's hard to, shed too many tears for them but obviously it's um it people should also get what they've signed a contract for shouldn't they um yeah it's uh it's a tough one because to be honest she's already making a fuckload from the film anyway and i can understand why disney have put it on demand anyway because obviously the ongoing situation some people are not as comfortable as others to go to the cinema right now so but they want everyone to watch the film and still make money from it but if she can prove that they that she's due her cut and she's due her fees and they've basically lied to her, then she does have a case. But I do think she's getting paid handsomely enough as it is. Um, yeah, I think, I wonder if there's maybe some history to this because she's been involved in the in the, uh, in the the MCU franchise for like a good decade. And I wonder if there's an element yeah. of she's constantly only getting cameo roles or supporting roles, perhaps not being paid maybe, as well yeah. as the other people, not getting her own film until the very kind of very end of her phase of the MCU cycle. Um, there were a lot of complaints about like, merchandise for female characters in marvel not even getting stocked in shops right okay and not feeling very supported on stuff like that um and you know she's she's doing it after her last film with disney and marvel is done and she's obviously not going to be working with anymore and it maybe there's 
maybe there's a few issues being stored up and this was like the st- the straw that broke the camel's back if you see what i mean maybe yeah no i understand I, no i can i can understand why someone would feel aggrieved if they've promised it'd be a cinema wide release and they've thought well we can kind of milk this cow a little bit more for the folk that aren't going to go to the cinema and you know get money mm-hmm. that way but yeah you know at the same time they've also paid her handsomely for those cameo roles you know yeah that she you know she obviously wasn't the main part of the mcu um franchise you know she was obviously black widow and she had a supporting role that's that's all totally, totally different debate whether you think that's okay but she's been paid handsomely and i just kind of think like you're 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 she's probably the the richest female actor you know she's probably the richest female super uh, movie star sorry that you can think of right now um i yeah. don't know who get, i don't know if you can name one who gets paid more than her but it's, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, yeah i'm my my guess is that it over time it'll emerge it's more than, than just this yeah, but I, I see where you're coming from. It is a multi-millionaire arguing to have more millions. Is not you know I'm not going to man the barricades over this one myself. You know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to be honest, the, the way that, what it hinges on for me is if Disney have put it on Disney Plus to milk as much money as they can from everyone, then that's obviously a bit shit from them because. Um, yeah, that was the other thing she said. She actually said that because she'd done what she'd done, they were able to post bigger profits on the Disney Plus streaming side. Because they've increased subscribers, and they can kind of say, "Oh, look at our increased subscribers." Twenty quid at the same time, to pay her on. less money, isn't it? I don't, I've never hired, I've never rented anything with that premier access on Disney Plus. I'll just wait for it to come out. Mm. Um, you know, normally, but um, yeah, it's, it's you're yeah. making twenty quid a pop every time someone buys it, which might be more than two people going to see it at the cinema. You know, so yeah, uh, yeah, it we'll just see. depends I mean, on what it's... the arguments are for it. Why, why Disney decided yeah. to release it last minute, which is probably greed because yeah. it is Disney. Yeah, I mean, if, if we do hear anything, it's going to be months down the line, or Disney will quietly pay us some money to shut up about it, and we'll never hear about it again. You know? Yeah, I don't. I don't particularly care. It's a it's a multi millionaire no. wanting money from a multi billionaire. So I don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think long longer term, we'll probably keep an eye on this sort of thing and see how it affects you know film releases and and what films get made. Right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably. I think Disney have just tried to milk a cash cow, and they've kind of had their arses handed to them because. Scarlett Johansson's obviously a smart cookie, and she's got she'll have a legal team around them, you know. Yeah, yeah, she, you know, she's she strikes me as the sort of person who would keep hold of important emails. Yeah, she's 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 on the ball. She's not she's not a dixie yeah. fucker. She's you know she's pretty yeah, she's yeah. pretty clued on. So another news: the trailer has dropped for the new Ridley Scott film. Uh, it's one of two films that are coming out this year, but this one is the Last Duel, uh, set in me- medieval times. Uh, I thought it looked very good. I don't know if you saw it, mate. No, but did you not do a film called The Duelist? He did, yeah. Someone said it's quite interesting that his debut film is called The Duelists, and I'm sure he has plans to carry on making films, and he's got another one coming out after this one, but it's interesting that it's almost being bookended with another film called The Last, with the word duel in it coming out late he's in his career. Fair ages, well, Ridley Scott, was he now, 84? He's going to be 84 this year, Fuck or he might, might be 84 already, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I thought the trailer looked very good. It's It's based on true events, although I imagine given those true events took place 800 years ago or 600 years ago or something, there will have been a fair amount of dramatic license taken. Um, it's about yeah. a woman who was uh, uh, alleged uh, that she was raped by her sort of noble, sort of aristocratic husband's uh, sort of leading soldier, and uh, it wasn't resolved in a court case. It resolved resolved in trial by combat. Right, okay. Um, so, I mean, it shows that Ridley Scott still has an urge to make a medieval film about knights and chivalry. That's something he really wants to do. I mean, he did Kingdom of Heaven, but that wasn't set so much in... Um, in, in in you know in Europe you know and he obviously wants to do some traditional uh, knights and chivalry stuff so I'm I'm looking forward to that one I think it could be good 
And, and speaking of knights and chivalry, uh, just a quick headline. Uh, the Green Knight has been postponed in the UK, sadly. Um, if we've got overseas listeners in the US, which I know we do, some of you might have had a chance to go and see it already in America. But it's August the 6th release date was postponed, apparently because of the COVID situation, without any more comment around it. Huh. But it's a film, a film being postponed for COVID. It's kind of... I think this is a, a relatively independent film, and I just wonder if it's it can't afford to not have a, a good full-on cinema release. So I think they're just hanging fire until they're sure they can fill the fill the screens up. That's odd. Um, it, it is odd. It's um, this is the one with uh, Dev Patel playing um, playing Sir Gawain. It looks it's, one, it's one of the it's one of the more interesting uh, King Arthur tales as well. It's it's the story of Gawain and the Green Knight. He was one of the Knights of the Round Table, who was sent after, you know, in the stories, uh, a supernatural figure called the Green Knight. So it's not just a, you know, a King Arthur type tale. It's all supernatural and strange and weird. So I'm kind of, I'm looking. I really want to see. Great. this. I know I've seen the trailer. It looks quite good. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll get it'll get released, but it's pretty odd that it was postponed given that yeah, yeah, everything else is fucking open. Yeah, this yeah. it's it's really swimming against time. Everyone else is going, hey, let's release our film now, and the Green Knight went, no, we're postponing. That will. <laughs> Um, the only other news story I saw, which kind of, I don't know whether to laugh or cry at this, but the the, the plot of the film I Am Legend, you remember the Will Smith apocalyptic oh, film, yeah. is being used as an excuse by anti-vaxxers to avoid taking the COVID vaccine because they're saying because of the content of this film, they're worried that taking the COVID vaccine will turn you into a vampire zombie and lead to the end of the world. And the writer, or I think it was the writer of the film, had to come out and say, "Oh, for fuck's sake! You know, I, this was yeah. a made-up film. You know, it's it's a yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, it goes without saying that people who believe the bullshit ideas of made-up films uh, uh, to stop taking vaccines in a in the middle of a pandemic are really the lowest of the low. But I have to say, I'm not super keen on Hollywood screenwriters using shit lazy storylines about scientists killing the world with a vaccine in the first place." It was a fucking dumb storyline for him to come up with. Not that that justifies stupid people believing it's real. Uh, yeah, uh, there's nothing more to say. If you're, if you're anti-vax for any other reason apart from you're allergic to the vaccine, because some of them contain things that you're allergic to, other, if you have a genuine political yeah, reason. You know, they have said like there's a risk of blood clots, which is why they're avoiding giving the AstraZeneca to younger people. I, I, I can, you know, there are some reasons to have Being vaccine hesitancy. The concept is fucking absurd. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, I get it. Totally agree. Um, Any other news stories that you've seen? Um, nah, I know Dune's coming out, which looks quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I saw a trailer for that earlier in the year. I'm looking forward to that. When it, when's that coming out again? Uh, not a Scooby. Um, but it's a very good cast. Um, yeah, I mean, and and it's Denny Villeneuve, and apparently he's doing it in two halves, so he can actually do the story properly. Because it's I, like a five million page long book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm quite excited about this because Denny Villeneuve. I'm trying to think of a shit film he's made, and I I'm struggling. So oh, I could probably think of one. Let me go to his IMDb. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's coming out later this year, October. So oh. that's going to be that's going to be interesting. Yeah, so I think that's the news for this month. Um, obviously, as we've as we've uh, started doing, because uh, the, the the restrictions because of COVID are relaxing somewhat, we are now enjoying being able to say there are some films out at the cinema, and I thought I'd pick out a few. Um, please feel free to pick out any that that interest you as well, mate. Um, there's a film coming out called Zola. Uh, is that I, about Emil Zola? No, what it is, this is a bit of a minor landmark in film history. Not that I know whether this is a great movie or not, but it's the first film I've heard of. 
But instead of being based on a book or, you know, a magazine article or, you know, uh, any, anything like that, it's based on a Twitter thread that went viral. Right. What? Okay. An American um, exotics dancer, pole dancer, stripper, who go, went by the, the stripper name of Zola, she told her story in a series of tweets. You can read, you can read the, the, the Twitter thread. It's still on there online about a wild road trip to Florida with a girl she had really only just met. Uh, and she thinks she's going down there on a bit of a stripper tour, pole dancing tour, make some money at all the clubs. And it turns out that the the girl who, who's invited her down, her, that's not just her boyfriend, it's her pimp, and they're trying to traffic her for sex. And then what she does about that. Uh, the other people involved in the story dispute her version of events. Uh, and apparently it all goes a bit wild and crazy, cause, especially because it's Florida. Hmm. Uh, and they've made that account into a film. I was, that's... I'm, I'm quite interested. You know, it is. I think it's a little. It'll be a, a pub quiz question for years to come. That I reckon. That sounds mental. And, and it, it sounds quite intriguing. Who's Pardon in me? it? Who's in it? Um, a couple of people who you know when you look at a cast name and you don't altogether recognise the names, but then you see pictures on them and go, "Oh yeah, I think I know who that is." Oh, okay. Um, let me read out some of the names for you. Riley Keogh who I have seen in a couple of things, Taylor Page, who I didn't immediately recognize, but then when I looked at her filmography, I think I had seen her in a couple of things. They're the only names that I recognize out of it. Oh, I've not heard those names. Who's directing? It's directed by someone, again, who I don't recognize. Um, Janik Sabravo. I may well be pronouncing that wrongly. But, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a curious one. Um, it'd be interesting. That is out now, so it's interesting to see how that one turns out. Um Another film, again, which is sort of very kind of, uh, you know, to do with modern modern day concerns is Free Guy, which is Ryan Reynolds plays a mild-mannered bank clerk who finds out that he's actually just a non-playing character inside a violent video game, <laughs> which is, uh, they've done, there was that, there was that, what's his name, uh, Gerard Butler film, which uh, had a similar uh, storyline on it, as I recall. Gerard Butler? Yeah, it was called Gamer or something, and he's playing a soldier in, in an endless conflict who keeps dying and respawning and starts to realise he's actually not real. He's in a video game. Oh, I've no, I've never heard of that. But yeah, yeah, and um, this is this is you know, I think we've talked in the past about how video game adapt straight video game adaptations often don't work, but sometimes when people take an aspect of video gaming and make a film of that, that can sometimes be quite interesting. Yeah, and Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds is usually good. No, right. It's got. I've seen that it's got good reviews. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, The Courier, Benedict Cumberbatch is in a, a, a Cold War spy thriller based on a true story about a British, British uh, agent trying to, like, spy trying to avert the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's supposed to be quite good. Um, Mini Marta, again, a true story. Johnny Depp playing a photojournalist uncovering horrific pollution in Japan. Uh, there's also the reboot new version of Candyman, which is a classic horror movie from the 90s. They're doing a new version of that that's coming out at the end of the month. And I think by the end of the month or early September, I can't remember which, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is coming out. So another big Marvel film. That looks shit, though. I saw the trailer for that when I went to see Suicide no, I haven't seen it. It looked fucking crap. That's a shame. But, uh, yeah, I guess you just have to, you know. Films don't have a divine right to be good, do they? So you just have to, you know. I, the reason I say it's a shame is that when when Marvel actually does one of its more kind of lesser known, interesting, not just a traditional kind of superhero in a costume films, 
I'm interested to see how it pans out. You know, like Guardians of the Galaxy. So I was hoping that was going to be good, but they it might be good, but it just looks a bit rubbish to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe the maybe the trailer guy did a crap job. Yeah. So any any other new releases or things that catch your eye, mate, that you you saw that you wanted to talk about? No, nothing that comes to mind actually. Okay, very good. Um, so in terms of like films out of the cinema, I think you and I have both gone out to cinema to see films, haven't we, in different ones. So uh, you went to see uh, The Suicide Squad and I went to see Black Widow. So why don't you give me a rundown of The Suicide Squad uh, uh, when you went to see it, mate? Yeah, it's, it's fucking incredible. It's amazing. It's very funny. It's very well done. It's uh, what everyone wanted from the first Suicide Squad film, um, but with a proper writer and a proper director. It's just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I have to say, I saw the trailer for it when, when I went to see Black Widow, and I did think, yeah, I'm, I, I think I'm going to give that a go. Yeah, so amazing. I am going to try and get out to see that. Sylvester Stallone's the best thing in it by a mile. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's great. It's it's stupid. It's all, about, it's all about the tone, isn't it? It's about getting, you know that they're going to have enough money, usually have enough money to kind of make a film with big special effects and everything, although DC's balls that up before. It, it is about getting the tone and, and, and style right when you're doing something like that. And the special effects they use are usually used for a comedic effect, um, or mm. to not make to make the rating a bit lower <laughs> um, right. for certain scenes. Because there's definitely a scene in it where uh, they've obviously edited out the blood because yeah. they've gone, yeah. If you don't edit that out, it'll have to be uh, the highest rating it can be. But no, it's it's tremendous. It's very good. It's what probably my favorite film of the year so far. It's definitely probably my favorite DC film since uh, The Dark Knight. It's. Uh, mm. It's been very yeah, and, and often people don't actually think of the Dark Knight as a DC film. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a Nolan film, but it is. It's a DC film, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's very well done. Everyone's really good. Idris Elba's good in it. John Cena's surprisingly good in it. Um, although I don't know how I feel about him getting his own spin-off with his character, but it's uh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, great. I went to see it with my housemate Rory, and we found it hilarious. We were just you know we passion ourselves laughing it was great um i would recommend anyone that likes that type of film to go and see it it's it's not going to be everyone's taste it is very violent and it is very gory but it's a uh, it's great great cast well that's a good enough recommendation for me i'm, I'm definitely going to go out and see that so i went to see black widow which is kind of i'm not sure if they're sticking with like the marvel phase four or five or whatever uh, you know uh, sort of naming of their phases of films and even if they did, it feels like Black Widow is like the end of the old era of Marvel, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Because this is set, I think, just after the events of Age of Ultron or Civil War. It's around about that time anyway. So it's like a prequel or, or whatever. It's certainly set before the events of uh, Avengers Endgame. Obviously. And I, I liked it. Um, I've got to say, obviously, there's been loads of Marvel films come out over the past 10 years. And... You know, so I'm not always running out to see the next Marvel film when it comes out, but I did. I did want to see what they did with Black Widow, yeah, because I like Scarlett Johansson. I thought Black Widow was a good character, um, and I thought there were a lot of things about it that were good. I thought what I liked about it was that a lot of it was she's living off the grid, she's in hiding, she has to live on her wits. There is action. A lot, a lot of the action was, you know, escaping and and needing to kind of be a little bit less obtrusive than she normally would when she's going in on an attack with Hulk and Thor, right? And I yeah. thought that was good. And I thought the character stuff with her kind of surrogate Russian family that is the background to the whole story was good. Florence Pugh was excellent. Um, I thought the director did a nice job as well because there's a lot of – the last couple of films that director's done have been like psychological thrillers and horror movies. And it, so 
it, it's like comedy, right? They, they, they're, they're always quite good with their timing. So there's a couple of really well-timed, well-edited action sequences which come out of nowhere and were, were very, very effective. The only things I didn't like it about it was that it kind of descended into typical CGI crashy-bashy by the end. I just thought, you know, after what you've set up, I think a more, you know, it felt a bit lazy to just go, right, now let's just blow everything up. Um, and also Ray Winstone was terrible. I've no idea what they thought they were doing, casting Ray, Ray, Ray Winstone in that part. In it. What was he doing in it? He plays the evil supervillain kingpin behind the black, the original Black Widow scheme. In, oh, and the backstory of Black Widow is that they take these orphans and turn them into super assassins, especially women. Um, and it's like it, in, in the bad old days, they were a, a, an evil, evil Soviet assassin force. Now, following following the collapse of communism, it's you know it's like a private enterprise, but still as kind of you know sneaky and evil as it was before. Um, and Black Widow defected from that, and she's fighting back against her old enemy. Uh, and Ray Winstone plays the Russian supervillain, and he can't do a Russian accent like Who he can't do an American thought? accent or any other accent apart from his own, and it's absolutely appalling. He's basically just a short, fat Jason Statham. Yes, I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, except that Jason Statham has learned wisely to not bother with films where he has to do an accent he sticks to what he's good at but ray winstone apparently keeps trying to do boston accents in the departed which he did not do well and and in this it's appalling i uh, it's a real and i don't i don't know why they insisted on having ray winstone for it i mean maybe they're big fans of ray winstone but you just think there's no reason not to have a just any other actor who can do a russian accent or a russian actor it's not like ray winstone is the is the reason People go and see a two hundred million dollar Marvel film. Absolutely baffling. But I mean, yeah, look, it, it's all right. I'm talking a lot about how much I dislike the Ray Winstone thing. On the whole, I quite like the film. Yeah, I had a pal that saw it. He said it was all right. He didn't say it was yeah. anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I quite enjoyed it. And the thing is, I like spy films. So the more of a spy film it was, the more I liked it. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was good. And I think they've clearly got an intention to make Florence Pugh the next Black Widow. Uh, and I'm I'm up for that. She was really good. I could totally see her. Carrying on that character, nice. So, so that's that one. Um, so, other than that, I tell you what I wanted to talk about, and I don't know if you actually got a chance to see this, James. This wasn't a cinema release; it was on Disney Plus. But uh, did you see Summer of Soul? No, you did recommend that I watch it, but I just didn't get around to it. Been a bit. I totally recommend you going busy. to see it. it. This is a really interesting film because what it was, it dates back to 1969 and there were some real milestones in kind of big concerts and concert films in 1969 because that was a year of Woodstock, yeah. which people saw as like a huge festival and a sign of, it was like the classic era of like hippies and peace and love and, and sort of, you know, the world changed and young people started to have more of a voice. It's also the, the Gimme Shelter came out that year, the sign of a, a, a Rolling Stones concert that went really, really wrong and people got killed in the audience. Um, and this came out at the same time and was should have been as much of a milestone. It was the Harlem Cultural Festival, which was six major events with about 50,000 people at, at each one over the like a couple of weeks of the summer in Harlem, including some huge music acts. And also it was the time of, you know, black people, you know, a year after Martin Luther King getting killed, black people also trying to organize and kind of continue to press on with their civil rights, you know? Yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating that it, never got televised 50 years on it's only just now being televised which is really sad but i mean it's an amazing film because you've got nina simone bb king stevie wonder aged about 22 looking like a god 
doing a drum solo. Are we sure this guy's blind? No, um, he's not. There's no. He's some sort of incredible soul music ninja. He's not. Have you seen Shaquille O'Neal and Lionel Richie talking about how Stevie Wonder's not blind? <laughs> no, but I have seen the bit where he catches the um the, the, the microphone. The right. Everyone watched the video Stevie Wonder's not blind. So Shaq <laughs> is in a lift and Stevie Wonder gets in and presses his button to go to the floor and says, What's up, Shaq, baby? And you're like, What? <laughs> and he gave Lionel Maybe Richie a lift some somewhere. Sort of spoof or something. Either he's told them to tell the news that he's not blind, or he's not blind. And yeah. both of those scenarios are incredible. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for anyone who's a fan of that kind of music, and I know you are, mate, it's an absolutely yeah. brilliant kind of concert film. It's also quite sad that it didn't get shown at the time. What it felt like for me was when I went to see the Blade Runner Director's Cut for the first time, and it was like suddenly there's this whole new movie that I didn't get to see before, you know? Yeah. And it's this whole amazing experience that deserved to be seen more at the time, and it is good that it's being seen now. I cannot recommend it enough. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film, not just for the music, for the, the story of the time. Really yeah. brilliant. Can't recommend it enough. So that's on that's on that's not a cinema release, that's on Disney Plus. Nice. So apart from that, we tend at this point in the roundup to talk about how we're doing on our um resolutions for the year. So why don't you lead off, James? Your resolution for the year was just to try and um find a greater balance between TV uh, series and, uh, and and films to watch, and I know you kind of put yourself uh, on an uphill struggle uh, this this month because you got into Ted Lasso. So I watched um, Ted Lasso, which is very good, and everyone should watch that. Um, but in terms of, I hear film, nothing but good things about that. It is very good. Um, but in terms of films that I watched this month, let me just go to my. No, obviously, my, you went out to the cinema to watch um, uh, the Suicide, Suicide Squad, Squad. So that's that's got to go on your scoreboard, um, right? I watched Munich. Very good. What did you, have you, is that the first time you've seen it? Yeah. What did you think? Oh, it's bleak. Fucking hell, it's bleak, isn't it? I mean, especially. I mean, I know. I know he did Schindler's List and everything, but there's something about Munich which is almost more bleak than that. Yeah, it's it's because yeah. Schindler's List was obviously the Holocaust and absolutely horrifying, but they felt like there was a message of hope at the end of it. But I felt like at the end of Munich, Steven, Steven Spielberg of all people was kind of scratching his head and going, I'm what "Sorry, guys, I don't think I can then? find a message of hope for this one." Well, yeah, it was like, what the fuck was all that for? And that's mm. kind of the message of the film. Um, yeah. yeah I, I, was, I think it's a really underrated Spielberg film, that. It was, yeah, it was quite bleak. Um, it, it was, it was a, it was a, you know, it was quite a stark watch to just kind of watch, mm. you know, these people wanting revenge for the horrible mm-hmm. events. It's kind of about how it's almost an endless cycle of violence now yeah, that no one can escape from. It's kind of the whole statement of the film. They say, okay, well, we, we killed all those guys. Um, we killed the Russian community. Um, the Russian um, link between, um, is it Hamas? Or no, the Black black September terrorists. We killed him and then mm. they replaced him and then we killed this guy and they replaced him. So what, are we just going to kill everyone forever? Is that the whole point of this? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite bleak. Um, I watched Guns Akimbo, the Daniel Radcliffe film. All right. I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen a trailer for that, but I saw a poster for it, which looked really interesting. It's all right. If you've got an hour and a half to kill, it's ridiculous. And Daniel Radcliffe is always, you know, at least a six or seven out of ten. Um, Very good. What else did I watch? I feel like I'm missing another film. Uh, Blood Diamond. I watched Blood Diamond. Ah, oh, that's a good old favourite, that. Oh, the, it, I thought it was pretty fucking boring, but the fucking best bit of the film is at the end, Regime on Honsu's talking to his son, who's mm. been kind of like converted and radicalised into hating his own father, and you think you think he's, the kid's going to shoot his own dad. And that bit of acting, if anyone's not seen it, is the best bit of acting I think I've ever seen. Mm. Um, it's just incredible. That, like, that two-minute bit is just like phenomenal. Um 
it just blew me away. Um, yeah, um, that that was a good film to watch. I watched Titan AE again. How does that hold up after 20 oh, years? Oh, it's fucking shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just shit. It had so much promise, but it was just so badly done. Um, it's when you when you look back on it. I remember because we went to see it at the cinema, and, and it is visually very, very, very impressive. But the storyline is you, you, is like back of a postage, postage stamp stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you go back on it now, it's it just looks kind of just looks kind of dated. It's. It, it was it was their attempt to kind of do an anime, wasn't it? It's just that that when the yeah, Japanese yeah. do an anime, there's always a lot more to the story than that. There's always a little bit more of a dark twist to everything. Things different when it's not your culture, if you know what I mean. You know, Japan yeah. is and, and also the guy who did it is the guy responsible yeah. for all dogs go to heaven and everything. So he's not really one to give you kind of that kind of dark cyberpunk look at the world, you know. Um, but yeah, I managed to get a few films in. No, that's good. That's, a, that's an interesting. That's an interesting variety of films as well. Sure, I'm missing a couple more. I just, I think my Netflix has had a bit of a meltdown because it's not telling me I continue to watch or watch again. All right, um, but yeah, I might have a couple more. Um, well, shout them out if you see them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, I've got two resolutions that I have to keep up each month. The first one is to watch uh, an old favourite, something I haven't seen in years. Um, and this month, what I watched was uh, Children of Men. Um, this is a funny one. This came out about 2006. I bought it on DVD. It's what Alfonso Cuaron did straight after um, Harry Potter and a Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and uh, it's a brilliant film, even though it flops at the time. And, and funny enough, I remember watching it at the time, and I don't know if I completely clicked with it at the time, and I wonder if it was the mood I was in, but I sat down to watch it this time, and I, I really, really liked it. Um, it's kind of a f- – I don't know if you've seen it, mate, but – uh, yeah, no, I've, I think I saw it pretty much close to when it came out. It was, uh, right. it was a, uh, it was an interesting film. I, I was probably too young to be watching it at the time, but no, it's a really interesting concept. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Alfonso Cuarón does a good job of pretty much every film he makes. I mean, Whisper It. I think this might be his best film. Uh, watching it again, mm, I absolutely loved it. To be honest, I've still got a soft spot for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Gravity. That is a great film. Good. Yeah. I mean, it is a shame this didn't do very well at the box office. I just wonder if it's the fact that, you know, you need to make worldwide money on that, and worldwide money does not get made on, like, British-based futuristic sci-fi. But I thought this was really good. It's kind of a similar kind of premise to The Handmaid's Tale in that, like, as opposed to the overpopulation problem that we've got in real life, it posits a future where the um, the, the birth rate drops to zero and that kind of results in civilization kind of pretty much losing hope and checking out. And and then there is a... a, a the resistance to the fascist regime that's taken over in the UK has a young girl who's pregnant and they have to kind of find a way to to uh, to get her out, out of, of the grip of the, the regime. Uh, and it just takes you through what the world is like in that future world. It's got this brilliant kind of battle scene in the middle, which is basically one take. It's inspired by an old classic film called The Battle of Algiers. And it really kind of brought home, you know, it basically brought, like Beirut or one of these kind of refugee war zones home to the UK. And I thought it was really fascinating. And they spent a lot of money on that, $76 million. Um, and they filmed on like proper UK locations, like they filmed it on Fleet Street, you know. And uh, and I don't think you'll ever get to see a film like that again where they actually film on location and spend that kind of money on that kind of sci-fi film. But, yeah, definitely enjoyed it. Very good film. Um, did you find any other kind of uh, Netflix to watch as while I was while I was describing that, mate? Uh, yeah, I watched The Legend of Tarzan with Alexander Skarsgård and Margot Robbie. All right, what was that like? Shit. Um, 
It's all right, but there's just dumb shit like uh, Alexander Skarsgård's hand becomes hands become like um, gorilla hands, and he can control alligators and he can speak to zebras and hippos and all that shit. <laughs> so it's basically he, he's actually Sheena Queen of the Jungle. Pretty much, yeah. And <laughs> Margot Robbie's in it basically to just kind of be his wife. And so, they, so he Jackson. doesn't have to have sex. So he doesn't have to have sex with other with the gorillas. Yep. And Samuel Jackson uh, plays George Washington the third or something like that. Excellent. Um, but there's the, the, there's a bit in the film where uh, Tarzan has to fight this uh, big gorilla. Okay. And doesn't die. No. Oh. And you're like, oh, oh, okay, my. good. So nothing can kill him then. Yeah. Christopher, thought, Walt. you know what? I thought the the last Disney Tarzan, the animated one, was all right. Which one? The- the one from two thousand, the, oh, the old yes. one from when you were a kid. Yeah, that one wasn't too bad. Um, but no, this one. I think was you shit. can you can you can suspend a bit more disbelief when the whole thing's animated for a start. And I thought where that one was quite fun was they had the idea of him like surfing on the branches. It looked a little bit different to a traditional kind of George of the Jungle, you know. So, yeah, right. the, this one was just there was a basically Christoph Waltz is the bad guy again, and. Uh, is it another one where they they give him like an absurd amount of money and he says, "Oh, all right, I'll do the villain I do in Tarantino films for you again." Yeah, but he uh, he kills the um, he kills them with rosary beads. Okay. Yeah. That's all um, very weird. Yeah, he's got these rosary beads that you can wrap around your neck and strangle you with them. It's uh, it's mental. Weird. That, that sounds like like Paul Schrader's Tarzan. Um, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> It's just a mess. <laughs> Fucking hell. Anything else? Uh, no, I think that was it. Okay. So my final uh, resolution entry uh, for the month is to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. And uh, the idea is that I take my favorite 12 John Carpenter films and watch them in ascending order of uh, their rating on IMDb. So the the least well-liked at the beginning of the year, uh, climaxing with the you know, favorite and hopefully best John Carpenter film at the end of the year. Now in August, we're you know we're comfortably in the top half. We're among his better films, his better regarded films. Um, so this month entry is They Live. Uh, this is from 1998, and this is widely regarded as being the last film that John Carpenter made during his kind of classic phase. From Assault and Precinct 13 in 1976 through this in 88, he had this sort of unbroken period where Maybe not all of his films during that period were big hits, but uh, they were all good. They all showed what John Carpenter can do. And um, this followed on from Prince of Darkness when he stepped away from big studios and was doing something a bit more independent. So this is a kind of slightly low-budget sci-fi action thriller. It's also a political commentary on the Reagan years in America in the 80s um, and you know how it created an underclass who were being run into the ground by the wealthy elite. And his way of telling that story is the idea that all these people who are living hand-to-mouth, taking jobs for cash and basically living in a shelter in L.A. while the yuppies get richer and richer, find out, or some of them find out, that all these yuppies that are kind of living on top of them are actually aliens who've taken over the world and are controlling everyone with kind of mind control. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the main character is uh, he's a big, sort of quite strong, muscly kind of bloke who just works on a building site, and he he notices at the shelter that he's working that there's a church over the road where something weird is going on and then it gets attacked by the police. Sort of, you know, fascist, you know, riot police kind of knocking the place down, which is an odd thing to do to a church. And he finds in there a box of sunglasses and he puts one of them on and suddenly sees that when you wear these glasses, you can see, A, that advertising billboards on the, you know, on the side of the road 
contain subliminal messages to obey, consume, don't question authority. And he also finds when he looks at certain people that they don't look human, that they're actually horrible looking kind of aliens who've got corpse like faces. Uh, and he realizes what's happened is this race of aliens have come down, live among us without anyone realizing, and somehow are transmitting some kind of frequency that tricks people into thinking everything's normal and should just go along with their lives. Uh, and uh, and on the strength of that, he sort of joins the the underground resistance to fight back against these people. And as well as being kind of a slightly paranoid science fiction story and a bit of a political commentary, it's also a kick-ass action film where it just completely kicks off. Rowdy Roddy Piper was a WWE wrestler who turned to acting. Um, but fortunately, he's not at the Hulk Hogan kind of shitty end of things. He's very much at the Dave Bautista end of things, someone who actually could act yeah. um, and really did a good job of it. Um, like a lot of John Carpenter films, it's got a bit of a Western vibe, even though it's set in present-day Los Angeles. The main character doesn't have a name in the story. He's like the man with no name. He walks into town at the beginning. He's got no roots. Um, and uh, he... Uh, finds what's going on and then just starts cleaning up the town and he starts shooting the aliens. He's got some fantastic, you know, lines like I am here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum. It's a lot of fun without losing sort of a bit of tension and also very angry commentary about kind of, you know, what the Republicans were doing to America at the time. Um, it's a lot of fun. There's probably a lot of like imagery from it that other people have, have used the idea that, that in the sunglasses, everything looks black and white. And there's a bit where he puts his sunglasses on black and white, turns around and realizes everyone in the shop is an alien and they all look at him. So it's got that vibe of the um, those old classic uh, sci-fi movies like Invasions of the Body Snatchers or something, where you turn around and you're surrounded by the aliens and they're all pointing at you and you've got to get out. But instead of like Cold War paranoia or other kinds of paranoia, the paranoia is against the yuppies who are in charge bleeding everyone dry. So it's quite a subversive film, a lot of fun, a lot of action. Um, and... Uh, considering it's quite a low budget it's quite nicely played out very good action again a, a modern day version of this would probably have a lot more explosive action and kind of noise and everything like we've talked about john carpenter before but this has got some brilliant you know very beautifully timed kind of sudden action you know his, his background as a horror director is put to good use when sudden sudden action um and uh roddy piper is an <laughs> absolute badass um i have to say i like this film when i but didn't love it when I first saw it. It's part of my John Carpenter collection. I hadn't seen it as much as I'd seen the other films if I hadn't seen it all. And I, I watched this one and went, I'm not sure if I like this as much as some other classic ones, but re-watching it, even though it has this kind of cheesy element, I think that's on purpose. And I really, really like it this time. It's got a really classic, clever style. Um, it's uh, It doesn't have a breakneck pace. It's got quite a deliberate pace, but that gives you a really good build-up to the story. And it's got another classic, open-ended John Carpenter a final scene where you know it, it, it doesn't kind of tie up the storyline it leaves it open and i really love that so yeah th this is one where you know a lot most of the john carpenter films i've watched as part of this collection i kind of like it as much as i liked it the last time if you see what i mean but this time i've really gone oh wow i've kind of reclaimed this one i really like this film it's a very very clever low budget sci-fi with some kick-ass action some brilliant shootouts uh never loses its kind of you know clever satirical edge um and although it does have this kind of slightly over-the-top cartoonish feel, I think that's deliberate. I mean, it's a late 80s action film that comes out the same year as Predator and, you know, and, and, and Commando and all of these things. So it's, it's very, very cleverly done. Very of its time, but a very, very clever film. Um, it also has this amazing sort of scene. And a key moment in the film is uh, Roddy Piper's trying to convince his co-star Keith David, who's also in John Carpenter's The Thing, 
that he's not crazy, even though he's just been seen shooting a bunch of people. Because if you don't wear the glasses, he looks like he's just killed some people. Uh, and he's trying to convince his workmate that he's not crazy. Put on the glasses and you'll see what I mean. And the other guy's really angry with them and refuses. And it descends into an insane fistfight. It's one of the most epic fistfights ever put on film. And the two actors actually agreed that every punch above the belt buckle and below the throat will be real. And they only kind of fake like the low blows and the, and the blows to the head. And it's an absolutely crazy, crazy fight scene. Possibly the most epic fistfight ever put on film. And because of that, that inspired this month's impromptu top 10, which is the top 10 most epic fistfights. Um, now, having agreed to do that, I quickly found that coming up with just 10 fistfights in the whole of the film was a near impossible task, and there's bound to be tons of disagreement. including boxing films, or are you just talking about like street fights? There are some rules here. I'm not including boxing films, I'm not including superhero films, and I'm not including fights where it's actually mostly a sword fight or a gunfight where they also throw punches. So not Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because that's mostly sword fighting, and not John Wick, because that's actually half the time they're shooting guns and half the time they're, they're, they're punching each other. So um, there's going to be loads of disagreement, like I say. I reckon the socials might light up with kind of, you can't believe you said that and not this, and I'm sure you might throw in some favourites of yours that I've missed, James. Um, but in no particular order... Don't, don't pussyfoot around it. Into it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, 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 I'm undermining myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So in no particular order, my choice of the top 10 most epic fistfights. Uh, Old Boy, The Corridor Fight. Yes. The Raid. Yeah, a dead heat between the two fights uh, against Mad Dog. The Raid 2, a dead heat between the massive prison fight, the kitchen fight, and the car chase fight. And the train fight. Honestly, we could have had an impromptu top 20 fistfights, which was entirely made up of fight scenes from the Raid films. Ugh. Um, but I'll just give them two, you know. Um the Bourne Ultimatum, Bourne versus Dash. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, the bathroom fight. Atomic Blonde, the stairwell fight. Enter the Dragon, uh, the Bruce Lee versus the Bear Claw, the final uh, climax in the Hall of Mirrors. The Matrix, Trinity's first fight at the start of the film. Uh, Fist of Legend, uh, Jet Li's final fight scene in that, which is uh, very impressive. And um, Police Story, Jackie Chan's shopping mall fight. I don't know if you've seen that. No, is it good? Uh, the best Jackie Chan fight scene of all time. It's got absolutely everything, including a motorbike. <laughs> that is a phenomenal, phenomenal. If I was going to pick one, I would pick that. You couldn't. You couldn't pick They Live, though. Did you? Did you put They Live on this? No, no. It's like as with all these things, it's always the top ten apart from you know the one, one that inspired okay, okay, it. So okay, it's okay, the top okay, ten okay. apart from They Live. So yeah, so that's my impromptu top ten, and that's my year of the carpenter entry for this month. Um. As always, I'm getting now to the the end of the of the year. So all of the year of the carpenter entries from now on are going to be the you know some of the big names that you've that you've all heard of. Uh, and next month it's Big Trouble in Little China, mm. which is obviously more of a small one of the more famous ones. Okay, so that's all that I've got for the roundup of this month. I don't know if you have anything else, James. No, I think that's it. It's a fairly chunky roundup, but very good. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from David Cronenberg's controversial crash 
to modern heist western Hell or High Water. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. So now the list includes Wages of Fear, Inherent Vice, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, Walk the Line, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, No Way Out, My Cousin Vinny, Mississippi Burning, and Sea of Love, an ever-growing list. This month, we're looking at a critically acclaimed and hugely successful musical biopic about one of the great outlaws of country music, and featuring one of our favourite actors giving a performance that deserved an Oscar but just missed out. Somehow, I never got around to seeing it, although James has seen it before, but I put it right this month. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 16 is Walk the Line. So, James, what's your what's your relationship with this film? Did you see it as soon as it came out? Did it take you a while to, to come around to seeing it, or what? I don't know if I saw it as soon as it came out, because I was only nine when it came out, and I'm pretty sure it's at least a 12. Um, yeah. And, and it's one of those 12 films that a, a, a nine-year-old's probably not going to bother watching either, is it? Well, yeah, the, the, the first like opening 10 minutes of the film is pretty... Some pretty gruesome stuff it's happens. quite bleak, isn't it? Um, and the entire story of Johnny Cash is quite a bleak story, especially... You know, after the kind of fifties and that, it was, it wasn't a fun time for him. So yeah, it's not really the type of film a nine year old would want to watch and probably should be watching if that makes, yeah, sense. But no, I think I watched it probably a few years after it came out. It's a, it's a kind of bog standard biopic that you know does the trick. It tells the story very well, um, but it doesn't just tell the story of the one person you're thinking of. It's uh, you know talks about his relationship with his wife as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's yeah I, I thought the same. I thought it, in most of its kind of like approach, it was a fairly standard musical biogra- biographical film, wasn't it? And I think what elevated it was the performances, the the uh, the kind of grim world around Johnny Cash that, that he's trying to face, which is you know obviously pretty pretty realistic. And as you say, the fact that it was about the relationship between those two people, not just Johnny Cash's musical career, those are the things I thought that differentiated it. Yeah, no, it's it's a very good film. It's a kind of harrowing kind of story, but it's, uh... yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting, sort of from a film, sort of a film geek point of view, that it's directed by James Mangold, who went on to direct Logan. Uh, and one of the most notable things about Logan is its amazing use of Johnny Cash's hurt in the trailer. Yeah, um, um, coinky dinks, isn't it? It's, uh... Yeah. So yeah, so just you know, for background for those who haven't seen it, or they're usually in these things, you know, one or one or both of, of James and I are the ones who have only just got around to it. So we'll keep it brief because maybe the audience already knows all this. Uh, Johnny Cash was born in 1932, died in 2003. He's seen as a real game changer in country music, one of the pioneers of outlaw country, which was sort of a wilder, grittier version. Uh, and departure from very traditional country music. He was, you know, a friend and contemporary of people like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley. So he wasn't just one of your traditional kind of cowboy shirt wearing kind of you know s- you know slide guitar um, country guys. There was more of an edge to him. He grew up dirt poor in Arkansas in a Great Depression. Uh, as the film depicts, he was you know horribly affected as a child because his elder brother died in a uh, an accident working an unguarded timber saw. Um, devastated Johnny, strained his relationship with his father, was probably the start of his troubles. He had a stint in the Air Force. Um, he came home, married his girlfriend, and started a family, but always wanted to be a musician. 
He auditioned for Sam Phillips, who was the owner of Sun Records. He'd signed everyone in that area, really, from Elvis to Roy Orbison, uh, and you know a bunch of this new wave of country stars. And Johnny Cash hit it big because his style was very new and people really chimed with it. But he had a lot of serious demons that got him into drinking drugs. At the same time, June Carter was a star in her own right. She was almost like the – she came from a showbiz family, didn't she? She was like a country version of like the Osmonds or the Jacksons, only a bit more normal. She'd just grown up. She like, released her first life, record yeah. when she was a child and stuff, yeah. So they're married to other people when they met, but over time their relationship blossoms. It got to a point where they're no longer married to other people. And Johnny Cash had partly got over his demons, at which point they married and stayed together for the rest of their lives. And um, uh, this film tells that story, not just of the arc of Johnny Cash's career, but the the relationship he had with June Cash, her troubles, his troubles, the way they're almost kind of they're almost addicted to each other, as well as him being addicted to all these other substances. And but she was like really. Uh, you could see she was hesitant to really sh- commit to someone who had who was such a mess in his life, you know, until he started making some, you know, making some changes. Uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting to note that um, Johnny Cash's brother passed away, and so did uh, Joaquin Phoenix's brother when he was quite young as well. Oh uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the things that attracted Joaquin Phoenix to the role. To the role I'm, yeah. I'm sure he, I'm sure he could identify with with how that feels, especially given when you know Joaquin Phoenix is a terrific actor and he's you know he he he'd already started making films by that time, but he must have looked up to his you know his you know his brother and you know who was who was very much seen as a bit of a golden boy of, of cinema as well, wasn't he? And it was a shock when he died. So there's definite similarities, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of parallels to draw. Between the two, but no, if anyone's not seen it and you're a big fan of Johnny Cash, it, it does it it tells the story quite quite bleakly, you know, because everyone looks at Johnny Cash and thinks, oh, he wrote, wrote all those good songs, but you know, it, tell, it really tells the story of his addiction and how his wife helps him fight that. Um, yeah, that, that's the bit that, that makes it more interesting. Just the average biopic, isn't it? There is there is a real story there. His, his troubles and, and and her troubles with him. Yeah, and also the, I think the best thing about it is that I think both uh, both Reese Witherspoon and um, Joaquin Phoenix did their own singing for the. Uh... Yeah, that's right. They both did. They both, you know, completely inhabit the characters. And I thought Reese Witherspoon was excellent. I mean, she completely you know holds her own in the film. I think she's a deserved winner of the Oscar. Yeah, um, no, it's a shame because I do think Joaquin Phoenix deserves to win it this year over everyone. I don't think there's anyone that year that actually put in a performance better than this. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It, that year, um, uh, Philip Seymour, it was it's seen as Philip Seymour Hoffman's year, wasn't it? It's just the way it goes. But that Joaquin Phoenix is better. Um, I, 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 I tend to agree. But you know, you, you know, we've talked at length about how the Oscars sometimes does that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what I like. This is a fun fact not really related to the actual film, but Sam Phillips, the record executive who signed Johnny Cash, the one who at the beginning tells him to stop singing gospel songs and sing something from the heart, um, he was really big. I mean, he's the one who discovered Elvis. But as well as that, what I didn't know, I only found out from sort of reading up on the characters, he uh, he also set up the world, well, America's first all-female radio station, WHER, in 1955, where everyone, all the presenters and, and, and you know, so everyone were, um, and announcers were, were female. That's a crazy bit of trivia. Um, so, you know, yeah. an, an, early, an early feminist there, because he, he just decided that not only, not only did he say he wanted to make a radio station that catered to female audiences, he decided the best way to do that was to give give them female presenters and, and, and make women the ones actually doing all that. So I thought this, you, you don't think of 
the southern states of the US in 1955 is a place where that will happen, right? Yeah. Not good on him. Yeah, not yeah. going to shag you though, pal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to keep it balanced. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, this is directed by James Mangold. Um, he's... He's an interesting character. He started out writing for Disney, um, um, but then broke through as a director in his own right. He did Copland, uh, he, you know, as well as this. He did Three Ten to Yuma. He did a, a Tom Cruise vehicle. Night oh, that's and a day, good film. Is, Sorry, I've, I've completely forgot. I'd seen that film, the one with Christian Bale and yeah. Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah, it's a good. That's movie. a good film, actually. Yeah. yeah, there's a bit of a blip with that Tom Cruise vehicle, Night and Day, but they then come back and did the two Wolverine films back to back. Which I mean, Logan is clearly the best of the two, but I like the other Wolverine film as well. The Japanese one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just did Ford v. Ferrari, the one with um, Christian Bale and Matt Damon. That was about the guys. Good. Yeah. Um, he's now directing the, the next uh, Indiana Jones film. Oh. You see, see I, I mentally made that noise as well because part of me is going, don't go and get involved in that. But then uh, he's quite good, so maybe he'll do a good job of it. I don't uh, know. They've been filming it in Glasgow, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Shut down um, the so, entire city. Yeah, dressing some of the buildings to make it look like, I guess, 50s, 60s America. They, had, yeah, they were filming two films at the same time. Uh, they were filming one of the Batmans, I think the Ben Affleck Batman, because there's Ben Affleck's Batman and there's also Robert Pattinson's Batman. Is Ben um, Affleck doing another Batman? Apparently. Um, but That's strange. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going on. But they closed the Kingston Bridge, which is like a big famous bridge in Glasgow. It's basically a motorway bridge. Um, mm. and they closed it off so they could drive the wrong way down it because obviously they drive on the other side. Yeah, they're driving the right. Yeah. There's loads of videos uh, on Twitter of this uh, like Glaswegian people just going, "He's driving the wrong way." Like, <laughs> uh, that reminds me of you know that film uh, Under the Skin. It's not. It's it's on my list of films to watch. I haven't seen it yet. But you know that shot in Glasgow. Oh, is that the fucking? She basically, she, she plays she plays an alien who looks like a woman and drives around in a van picking up guys. And some of the guys they picked up, it was all improvised, where she just picks a guy up and and and, and starts chatting to them. And then at some point they have to cut and say, "Look, by the way, we're doing this for a film. Do you mind, you know, do you mind your bit being used in in the film?" Um, but there must have been a few people sitting there going, "She looks a bit like Scarlett Johansson." The fuck she doing? Yeah. Has anyone said you look like Scarlett Johansson? <laughs> Imagine. You know, so yeah, Disney. Pardon. Is she no Sue in Disney? Yeah, so I hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's Walk the Line. I think, again, this is one where I should have got around to watching it ages ago. I mean, Whacking Phoenix is one of my favourite actors. Um, I like Johnny Cash. Uh, everything about this film, you know, points to it being worth a watch, and that's what we found watching it. So definitely recommend it. Um, two excellent performances, Whacking Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. Um so that's definitely one that we're glad we saw as a result of this feature and one to be recommend that you watch as well if you haven't done already. Yes, good. And now for the Hidden Gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month, we're drawing your attention to a Korean thriller that you may not have heard of as it only got a cinema release in its own country and then went to Netflix and the rest of the world, where it drifts in a sea of content waiting to be picked up by the algorithm. Our hidden gem for episode 16 is Jang Hangjun's Forgotten. 
Yes. So we're doing this a little bit differently to normal because normally this hidden gem feature is something where James and or I have seen something and we think you should watch it uh, and we'd seen it already and we want it to be seen by everybody else. And what happened here was I just happened to be kind of searching around for for something to watch. We have a few fans who said we'd like to see talk about more Asian extreme, especially Korean cinema. And so I was just I was Googling and I, and I saw this and went, okay, it's rated 7.5 on IMDb. It's available on Netflix. But I have not seen it. When I'm searching for films to watch, you know, I've watched a couple of films on Netflix that are, you know, I've watched Steel Rain, which is a, you know, a reasonably recent Korean thriller. Surely that should come up on films you might like. And it didn't. It was just kind of just just disappeared at the back somewhere. So I thought, why don't we watch this? So James and I were discovering this film with you, the audience. So, you know, not quite the same as when we, you know, show you some of the other films that we've already decided are, are worth kind of sharing with, with, with the audience. So uh, let's start this. It's a South Korean film from 2017. It was intended for domestic cinema release. Um, and as usually happens with films in any country, after it's had its, or, you know, once it's organized, how it's going to be released, you know, in its home country, they then work out the international distribution rights and Netflix picked it up. Um, so it's a bit misleading on Netflix when it says it's a Netflix original. It's not. It's been picked up by Netflix for distribution around the world, but it's only available now on Netflix. Um it did quite well in its Korean theatrical run, wasn't huge. Um, and as I said, it's now on Netflix, but not very prominently. Um, so we thought, why don't we just kind of show this to people and see what it's like? So neither of I'd seen it before we picked it out for the podcast. Just thought we'd uh, sit down and watch it. The director is not a big name Korean auteur like Bong or Park. He's a writer, actor, and director. He's done TV as well. Um, he hasn't done that much outside of that. So we just thought, okay, let's watch this. So um, let's start, James. I think you've already kind of made your start to make your feelings known about this. What did you think of it? It was shit. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't I, shit. It wasn't shit, shit. But it's just Shutter Island. Yeah. So without without giving away too much of the plot, it's one of those films where there's something going on, and you've got to work out what it is. And I think what happens is is that <clears throat> you have that setup, and then there's going to be a big reveal. And when that big reveal comes up that can totally colour your view of the whole film, can't it? Because when I was watching this, I really enjoyed the first hour. I thought there's some really great Hitchcockian influences. He's in this house. There's something about the house that's freaking him out. He's having these nightmares um, about a, a, a scary-looking woman who's covered in blood. Um, he's disoriented. He, does, he seems unclear about what's going on around him. Um, and you start to get the sense that something's not right. Something's not right with his brother. Something's not right with his family. And I thought it was very atmospheric and I thought it was very, you know, built it up. But at the same time, I sat there thinking, <clears throat> pretty soon we're going to find out what's going on here. And when we do, I'm either going to love it or hate it. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. how, how that plays out is either going to work really well or be a, be a letdown. Um, yeah, it wasn't necessarily a letdown, but if you've not, if you've not seen Shutter Island, then it's fine. It's, it's a perfectly fine film. If you've seen Shutter Island, it is just Shutter Island. Yeah. Um, obviously, the it's the same plot mechanism as Shutter Island, isn't it? Although what's actually gone on to, to get to that situation is slightly different. Um, it, it's interesting because what happens is it, the film's about an hour and 40 minutes long, and it's not like one twist. It's like a series of twists from about an hour in. From an hour in, you get this big revelation that he's he doesn't, about him to himself. He's like suddenly looks in the mirror and, and sees something different going on than he thought. And then there's another revelation about the, the the house he's been living in, the family that he's living with, and what the background to all of that is. And it's um, 
a very, very dark ending, as you expect from these Korean films. I guess what I thought was, I think what it is is that, like any like any film industry, career is career's got its best directors, hasn't it? And it's become known for certain types of film. And and I think this is someone, this is someone else trying to get in on the act. If you see what I mean? So I could make a film like that. And he's had a go. And there were elements of our light. I love the very Hitchcockian mystery elements building up to it. I wasn't quite so. I wasn't quite the first twist. I really liked the first twist where he, he's at the police station. He looks in the mirror, and he gets a huge shock. And I want to tell the audience about that huge shock. I thought, oh, that's interesting, right? Where he suddenly realizes that he's he's not even who he thought he was, or something's changed, and he's really shocked by that. I thought that was very clever. But then, as each subsequent twist came along, it was like, mm. and I, I wasn't quite so keen on the end. I have to say. I'd I'd rather people were trying to make films like this than dull average films, but it, it was a little bit derivative, and even there was even a bit where it was talking about like the poverty and the financial crash in uh, in Korea and and the the underground world, and and I kind of sat watching that and went, well, actually that was done a little bit better in Parasite, although that's a completely different story. But yeah, a, a little a little bit disappointing, but you know, on the whole, I'm I'm quite glad I kind of tuned in for something different. Um, but I, I think this has been done a bit better elsewhere. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's fine. I, I I don't like the lazy jump scares that it seems to it was relying on quite a bit. Yeah, I think the the reason that the lazy jump the reason that the jump scares are there is partly to keep you guessing in the first half of the film about what's going on, and then when you find out what's going on, you sort of go, oh, that's that's why he was seeing that. Do you know what I mean? But I think they could perhaps have done it a little bit better and built the atmosphere up in a in a slightly better way. Um, like I say, I, I I kind of like a twisty film with like with hidden stuff under there, and so I didn't mind watching this one. But again, if I had a choice of this one and a couple of and if if I name too many of the other films, do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll give away too much of the plot. But you know, there are other films in this style that I probably rot. You know, if I was to sit down again and choose what to watch, I'd probably choose one of those now instead of this one. Uh, yeah, well, it wasn't. I know I said it was shit. It's not shit, shit, but it's just the same plot of another film. Just I think I think that reaction is because when a film builds itself up like that, it and it then and then you don't like how it plays out. It just goes, oh fuck, you know. Yeah, um, but yeah. It was it, it it was all right. I don't think this is this director is going to be added to the, the the list of kind of those distinguished um, Korean directors whose whose careers break through to the rest of the world. Uh, but it, it it was all right. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the big screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month, we're looking at a gangster film set in Berlin after the wall came down that its director was working on for a decade before his untimely death. The one that got away for episode 16 is Tony Scott's Potsdamer Platz. So, James, before we announced this was going to be our feature, did you know anything about this? Had you heard of this film at all? Nope. So yeah. enlighten me. Yeah, so this was this was something that, because um, I'm a bit of a geek and because we do this feature, I'm always looking for sources of, of you know, unmade films. This was in a book that I bought on, on this general topic. And 
so Potsdamer Platz is it's a, a very famous square in Berlin. It's also a very big um, uh, uh, train station. So this is like having a film called Liverpool Street or King's Cross or something, right? Um, and it's a it's been a huge part of like German history at a number of key times. So I thought it was really interesting that Tony Scott would have a, a gangster film basically set around this time. But that, that that's what it is. It was a a gangster film set in Berlin after the walls come down in the 1990s when uh, communism has fallen, East Germany has opened up. It's a bit of a free-for-all, and there's a number of competing organized crime uh, families battling for position, which leads to a violent confrontation and a central character who decides he wants to get out. Uh, but that's not a very good time to get out because he's just started World War III. Um, he's a, a New Jersey gangster who's been sent over there by one of the more powerful mafia families, trying to muscle in on the local gangsters who just happen to be a lot more powerful than you think. The Turkish mafia have taken over part of the city and the Russian mafia with links to the old East German secret police have taken over another part of the city. And this confrontation all revolves around Potsdamer Platz, which was in the process of a lucrative reconstruction now that the Berlin Wall's come down. So what was interesting about that is that after the after World War II, Germany, well, Germany was split into, but Berlin was split into different, and the city was controlled by different government and army authorities. So it's quite interesting that in this story in the 90s, uh, Berlin is now un- split under the control of different organized crime families, although that's an interesting take on, on, on what happened in Berlin. And Tony Scott doing a, a violent gangster film in a in a setting he doesn't normally do, I thought would be really interesting. So that's what that's what piqued my interest about this. There's not this isn't the most long and winding story. I mean, like you know, when we did Game of Death with, with Bruce Lee, that was almost like the culmination of his whole life. So there's a lot to that story. This isn't as as detailed as that, but it's still quite an interesting kind of missed opportunity. And and it only didn't happen because Tony Scott died. This was going to be his next film. Mm. Um, so for people who aren't I'm sure people are aware. Tony Scott was a highly successful film director. Um, he was known for being Ridley Scott's younger brother and being the more action-oriented and commercial of the two. Um, actually, he began his career as the same kind of visual stylist as Ridley with things like The Hunger and, and other films like that that were very um, had a very kind of a distinct look like Ridley Scott's films do. But then his breakthrough was a couple of big summer blockbusters, Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop in the mid-'80s. And those films kind of defined his career because even though his films changed in style from that, there's a certain template. His films are always action-packed and have quite straight-ahead story, but they're always filmed in an unmistakable Tony Scott style. The second decade of his film career sort of cemented that reputation for stylish blockbusters. He did Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, Spy Game. And what's notable about those films is on the one hand, the subject matter is stuff like a tense submarine drama, a government conspiracy thriller or a spy film with lots of murky politics and double-cross. But his version of those films is sort of seen as being quite easily digestible for the multiplex audience. And that was Tony Scott's sort of reputation. Very stylish, good looking, but quite sort of straightforward commercial films. Not there's anything wrong with that. I like a summer blockbuster and I'd rather watch a Tony Scott version of that than a run-of-the-mill one. But there's a feeling that he was doing more standard and commercial films with not enough of his own individuality on show. Uh, And maybe there's part of Tony Scott wanted to do something different. Now, the one... um, the one film from that era, that called 80s, 90s kind of Tony Scott making his name era that kind of sticks out is True Romance from 1993, which is a terrific film. And it's ironic that one of Tarantino's best films is actually not directed by Tarantino. Um, you, you, you like True Romance, don't you, mate? You've seen True Romance. Yeah, True Romance is quite good. Um... And 
what, what's interesting is that that film, True Romance, is actually a lot more like um, what Tony Scott started doing in the 2000s. Um, he get he finds this much more dark, violent, and edgy style with things like Man on Fire, Domino. He starts working with Denzel Washington more often, and he seems to find this new Tony Scott niche. Uh, and Potsdamer Platz was um, the story he was working on for most of the 2000s, from the turn of the century onwards. Um, the reason I was interested, the reason I like to have seen this done is because, as I say, Tony Scott is a very, very stylish and individual filmmaker. And this would have been quite a... I think this would have been a story more for him to get his teeth into. I think this had something to it, a bit like a bit like his brother's film, American Gangster. There's a very interesting kind of story about a very important moment in time there that he could have made. And it's a shame that he didn't make it um, because I would have liked to have seen him do something with like rival crime families trying to take over the city and also Berlin at that time. Berlin's always been known for having sort of great nightlife. And this was like, this is like great nightlife, but in kind of a grimy industrial kind of up and coming setting. It would have been perfect for him visually. Um, it was based on a novel by a guy called Buddy Giovinazzi. He was a low budget American filmmaker. who was trying his hand as a novelist. He moved to Berlin, researched this story. Um, and as I say, it's it essentially revolves around a turf war between the American mafia and uh, Turk- Turkish and Russian organized crime. Um, he he's not a great writer. It's not a great novel. I, I, I sort of it's only two pound fifty to buy in a Kindle store, so I, I I had a read of it. It's not great, but I, I think what it was is that Tony Scott would have looked at it and said, "It doesn't have to be a great novel. It's an interesting story. I can kind of do what I want with this." Um, and I think that's what he was going to do. Um, just for a bit of like potted history, Potsdamer Platz has always been like a, a kind of a, a unique part of Berlin. It started out as a trading post on the outer wall of the medieval city of Berlin, where all traders from the east had to pass through. It's always been influential since then. Um, in the 17th century, it was where lots of foreigners came in because the, the population of Berlin was decimated after a war. So there lots of foreigners moved in, and that's why Berlin's such an international city. Uh, it later became the main hub for the transportation of goods and people when the railroads arrived and became the centre of Berlin's legendary nightlife. So it's always been this kind of fascinating international hub where everything is happening. And then after World War II, when Berlin was divided up and the start of the Cold War, Potsdamer Platz was the pivot point between the different zones of the city controlled by the US, the British, and the Russians. So all of the tension of the Cold War and all of the tension between the world powers and also all the criminals and black marketeers who were all over this kind of previously war-torn city, they used to sneak in and out of each zone through Potsdamer Platz because it was right in the middle. And then when they built the Berlin Wall, it went through Potsdamer Platz. So this place is the absolute center of a whole range of, uh, of things happening in Potsdam Platz. And, and, and Tony Scott was going to make a film about it being the centre of this mafia turf war. And for about a decade, he tried to get it running. I think he needed to kind of polish up the story because it's not a very well-written book, but it's got a very good basic idea in there. Um, it was announced in the early 2000s that he was going to work on it. Um, not much gets heard about it until about 2010. And then it's announced that the film has been given the green light to go ahead with a cast including Mickey Rourke, fresh off uh, his career renaissance with The Wrestler, Javier Bardem, Christopher Walken, Jason Statham, and a, a classic French uh, actor and singer, Johnny Halliday, which is a very interesting mixture of, of actors. Um, one in, one detail that came out about how the, how the, the, the film was going to come out was that it was going to start with Mickey Rourke's character lying in his grave, his dead body having a flashback to what's happened in the film and how the story got out of hand, which is kind of a nod back to Sunset Boulevard, a classic old Hollywood movie. So the filming date seems to have got pushed back because Tony Scott's last film came out in 2010. And then in 2012, 
Tony Scott took his own life. We don't know really why he did that. There's been discussions that maybe he was having health problems, that, uh, but no one's ever really come out and, and publicly said exactly what was going on. Um, but because of that, we'll never know what kind of film we could have got here. Um, and no one else seems to have picked up the story to have a go at it. Um, so we don't know if this film's ever going to get made. I think it's a really fascinating idea for a film. But at the moment, the film rights are just sitting there waiting for someone to to have a go at it. Um, in terms of what it would have been like, um, I think it's a key thing to remember is that th- Ridley Scott's three, sorry, Tony Scott's three most personal films are The Hunger and Revenge, which um, he did in the first decade of his career and were, were box office failures. And True Romance, which, although it's a Tarantino film, Tony Scott put a lot of himself into that. And that film didn't do very well at the box office either. Um, because it was released before Pulp Fiction, not after, basically. Um, Tarantino only really made a name for himself in in Hollywood circles, not in the wider world. And um, it was only a moderate hit in, in America. It was much bigger in the UK. But Tony Scott was an amazing visual director. And this classic place and time, East Berlin has is, is collapsed. The Berlin Wall's gone. This whole new Berlin is being rebuilt, which doesn't exist today as we speak in 2021. It had only been around back then. Um, and I would love to have seen Tony Scott make a film about that setting. And I think this was his opportunity after he'd started having some bigger hits in, in the 2000s to do something with that interesting setting and do another more personal, proper Tony Scott film. Uh, and some of his some of his films have been quite, there's a lot of Tony Scott in them, but not enough of his personality in them. And this was an opportunity for him to really do something that would have, um, I think, mattered a lot more to him. And, and as a result, we've missed out on it which is a shame. I don't know how many Tony Scott films you've actually seen, James. Uh, I've seen Top Gun and I've seen True Romance and I don't think I've seen any of his later stuff. Hmm. His later stuff's interesting. He certainly got into a more kind of uh, sort of dark, edgier action stuff like Man on Fire. His relationship with Denzel Washington was pretty productive. He made some good films. And this would have been perfect for Tony Scott because that in, in the book, you've got these scenes of like illegal raves taking place in old warehouses, people escaping from, from the law through the old dirty concrete jungle of East Berlin. You can just see what Tony Scott would have done with it visually. You've got the Turkish uh, mafia who've kind of come in. These people are guest workers who are often ill-treated as immigrants, and now they've got some money and power. You've got the Russians who used to be the Russian secret police who are utterly ruthless. You've got the American mafia, and they're all on a collision course fighting this battle in the middle of Berlin. And also it's in Berlin. You don't see many, you know, you don't see many Tony Scott films in, in a setting like that. A lot of his films are much more American set. So I'm sorry we didn't get to see this. I think this is um this is one I would have liked to have seen. Um in terms of what it would have looked like, I think True Romance on Man on Fire, in terms of this is probably going to be a, a pretty violent, at the top end of Tony Scott, violent films. The rest of his 2000s input, because that's the kind of films he was making at that time. Um, if you want to see what Berlin would have looked at that time or the, what the look of the film might have been like, you can obviously go for Atomic Blonde, because that was Berlin just before the fall of the wall. Um, there's a German film called Wings of Desire, which showed what the div- div- divided Berlin looked like in the 80s. And there's Run, Lola, Run, which was set in Berlin and was made in the 90s, so you can see some of that emerging Berlin at the time. Um, it's really hard to say. that There's there's one small footnote to this which is disappointing because apparently towards the end of, of you know the, the, the story of this film, it emerged that Tony Scott had decided he was going to film the whole thing in Puerto Rico instead um, because I think it was cheaper to film there and it would have mean ditching a lot of the original story and it would have just had like the rival 
mafia storyline and, and all the Berlin storyline would have gone. And I don't know why he did Which that. Which isn't as as interesting. That was a loss yeah. of money. Yeah, it's not as interesting. So the, the whole thing feels like a missed opportunity, but there was a period of a few years where Tony Scott was going to make this really very different, really unique film that what I think would have, it would have topped off his career. I mean, I, I wouldn't have liked that to the end of his career. I would have loved him to carry on like his brother has, but it's just one of those things. We may never see this story now. And, I mean, I enjoy Atomic Blonde, but it's a very different kind of style of film to that. This this idea of, you know, the the realities of, of crime and the emerging Berlin, I think is a story worth telling, and I'd, I'd certainly watch it if someone made it, but I don't think we're going to see it now. I'm a fan of this era and of films like this, and I think this would have been a genuinely interesting and different film. There are a few films that are set at that time, which would have been interesting, but there would have been exactly this story, and it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been Tony Scott. And it really does feel like we got a missed opportunity here. Um, it's a fascinating time period, a fascinating storyline. I would watch this if someone made it. I'm just not sure if anyone's going to make it now. Yeah, I don't know why they would change the setting from Puerto Rico to Berlin because no, one, you don't see many films set in Berlin, especially at that period of history. Mm. That's actually that's a really interesting plot and um, plot point to start from. It's a really good solid yeah. start. I don't know why you put it in Puerto Rico because no offense, nobody's going to watch the film if it's a gangster film set in Puerto Rico. It's a really interesting point in history, so I don't know why they would swap it to there. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, well, I, I don't know what went on there. Unfortunately, we'll we'll never know, which is a shame. I hope someone somebody could pick it up. And well, this is the thing: it wasn't a hugely successful kind of novel. The storyline is is there to be used. Buddy Giovinazzi is not like a huge Hollywood power player. I imagine someone could pick up the rights to this film reasonably. It's not you know you're not picking up the the J.K. Rowling's fucking book rights. You know, I reckon someone could pick this up if they wanted to. And yeah. I think there's a very interesting story to be told there. No, so ho hopefully it does get picked up. Yeah. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month features a great example of an original film that was very of its time, making its remake especially pointless, as well as badly done. The remake Hate Watch for episode 16 is the 2007 version of The Hitcher. So the first question, James, is have you ever seen the original film of The Hitcher? No, because it's also meant to be really shit. Um, you see, the, orig the original 1986 version of The Hitcher, I watched it at the time. It was one of those home video hits. It was a lot of fun. It's completely trashy. We're not talking about a film here that's an absolute classic and no one else should touch it. But it's a slasher film. It's a slasher stalker film about bad stuff happening to 80s teenagers. The, mm -hmm. the main problem you've got here is why do you remake that? Every every era's got its own bad stuff happening to people in a new setting for that era, for that decade. And the 2000s had people, I don't know, it had people going abroad and getting in trouble on a holiday abroad. This is this is not a 2000s film. It's an 80s film being made, remade for absolutely no reason. 
Yeah, it was just shit. It was as soon as I saw the the camera lens, I went, "Oh, this has been produced by Michael Bay, hasn't it?" And then up on the screen credits came <laughs> Michael Bay, dog. Yeah, yeah. Michael Bay, and it had that horrible kind of sweaty, slimy, greasy mm-hmm. sheen that every single one of his films seems to have. Um, it was just it was just shit. You know, I, I felt bad for the actual cast because you could tell they were trying and they were trying to you know make something of it, and I didn't necessarily think that the acting was mm-hmm. that bad but it was just they're just so, in the wrong movie they're in the wrong movie in the wrong story in the wrong place at the wrong time it was just stuff like there was stuff that just didn't make sense sean bean has apparently got the strength to flip an entire pickup truck to land on its front just in front of the female lead right okay yeah how um, did he do that and how the, the fact that he you know he could pretty much outrun um, the Camaro that the main character is driving. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just absurd. It was, and the, the, the thing that topped off for more more than me, more than anything else, because you can suspend your disbelief for these kind of films. But it was it was getting to the point where you know it, things just weren't making sense anymore. So, but, uh, spoilers if you're not if you're going to watch this film, you know, turn off now. Oh, I don't care about. I mean, I'm normally quite um, religious about spoilers. I don't care about spoilers for this film. This film so, deserves to be spoiled. So what happens is is that they her boyfriend get the the female lead's partner, the male lead, gets split in half by a. a uh, the these two he's been he's been kind of tied up to two lorries and Sean Bean's driving it, and the police know that the guy's there. They make no effort to shoot down the metal chains that he's being held by. So then Sean Bean just put, drives the truck uh, away, splits the guy in half. He's dead. So he's now been arrested for the arrested and charged on his way to prison, etc. And she's been escorted up to can't remember where she's going, but she's being taken back to her family for some reason. Sean Bean, who has managed to take out an entire convoy. In the film, he shoots down a helicopter with a handgun. He shoots <laughs> seven police officers with a handgun. They're holding, you know, assault rifles and shotguns and all that. About six police cars in a uh, um, helicopter. He shoots them down with one hand because he's driving with the other. So a man this dangerous who's killed dozens of police officers, dozens of people. He's escorted in one van with two police officers driving and one police officer in the back with him. One of the probably the dangerous man, most dangerous man in the country at that point, and he gets one car. Not armored vehicles, not SWAT teams, not a fucking nuclear bomb attached to his brain that's going to blow up if he does anything wrong. One guy sat in the back with him, two police officers in the front, and to top it off, the woman, the partner of wh- whose partner Sean Bean has just killed, is following him in the car behind. <laughs> it's so. so what happens after that is you think, okay, so the film's over. He's been caught. Fine. That's it. That's got to be the end of it. No, because of course she's being driven straight behind the man who's just murdered her her boyfriend. And then there's more. He then kills some more police officers. And not none of these trained police officers have got the ability to shoot Sean Bean. It's the woman who's never held a gun before who picks up a shotgun and shoots him in the head. So no trained police officers that have had guns training using M16s and shotguns and pistols and all that stuff can killed sean bean it's the woman with a shotgun that that the, the woman who's never held a gun in her life with the shotgun to get revenge for her boyfriend it's absurd it was and it just it was so badly written because see, they the tried to of- they tried to turn her into like a, a sudden like final girl action hero in the last five minutes of the film 
And it was so unconvincing because she hadn't been that character at all for the rest of the film. Yeah, it's basically, they actually play the characters quite well. They play two kind of college students caught up in this big mess and they don't really know how to play it and they're kind of nervous and shaky trying to navigate the whole thing. Didn't necessarily think it was that bad. It was the actual plot of, you know, the actual plot points of the story that were just ridiculous. It was, yeah, because I actually quite like the idea of that story. They get picked up by a hitcher, hitchhiker, sorry, who frames them for all these crimes. Fine, can can get on board with that. The problem was is that, the the police are completely inept. They don't pull out enough stops to stop this mass ma- mass murdering uh, psychopath, mm. and it was just, you know, it was, it was just shit. <laughs> There's nothing else to say. It was just shit. Yeah, I mean, so the the original film, the original film doesn't really have a completely convincing storyline. It is far fetched, but the first thing they do is it's much more kind of lean and focused on the main story of, of, a, of a kind of slasher stalker stalking the one main guy, right? They, it was In the original, it wasn't a couple, it's one guy. And he does meet a girl on the way, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. It's, I mean, it's a good original cast. I mean, Rutger Hauer plays the hitcher in the original film, and he just, he just plays that really well. I don't think Sean Beam's quite right as this character. But in the original, it's just, it, they, keep, they keep the story lean and simple, and although it's far fetched, it doesn't turn into World War Three. So it's it's more believable that the police might not have a full SWAT team on him. And in the eighties, it's a little bit more believable that like they wouldn't have been able to send communication to all the local police officers and, and round up a task force. It was they, they just managed to keep it just that just this side of believable for the purposes of what's essentially a horror film, right? Uh, and and in the original, he just picks up a hitchhiker by the side of the road. Do you know what I mean? Whereas in in the in the new version, they see him. He looks a bit scary, but because they've they can't start the car, so they drive away, and then they pick him up later. And it's like, well, that's really weird. In the original, he just picks up a hitchhiker, and it was a bad choice, right? It, it, they keep it a, a bit more simple in the original film. But this is uh, this is a classic example of they're on a loser because they're remaking something that doesn't need to be made in the first place. There's people are already making slasher like running away from the bad guy films in the two thousands of, of that are suitable for that era. This is just weird. It's just, it's weird because it's the, it's not the right setting. It's all the, they suddenly have to introduce, Oh, well, why doesn't he use his mobile phone? Because in the original, he doesn't have to use his mobile phone. There are no mobile phones, right? And, and that's why the storyline worked in 1986. So they have to introduce why he doesn't have a mobile phone and why he doesn't use one for the rest of the film, right? And they have to introduce all of this stuff and it just, uh, that's why, you know, that's why it's not working. It's the people who made this film, the production company, they specialize in, in unnecessary remakes of old horror movies. They did a remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was shit. They did a remake of the Amityville Horror, which was shit. So it's no surprise that this one was shit as well. Um, it's just... Um, it's just messy. It's, it's just it's, it's an unnecessary film. Because the original film already exists, they have to kind of they decide they're going to up the ante with a bit more of this and that blowing up and like you say, him flipping over a, a pickup truck because they can't do exactly what happened in the first film, which is basically the story's already been done and stayed just the right side of credible. And now they have to try and do something different, and it's just never believable for one yeah, second. The, the, and the, for some reason, they've just got two unnecessary moments of animal CGI in the film that nobody needed to give a shit about. The opening shot is of a hare getting run Mm -hmm. over and it doesn't contribute to the film. And then the next bit of CGI is this dragonfly getting hit by... Uh, getting hit by the car and then washing it with the windscreen. And you're just... You're just... What what the fuck is going on? The the, Um, the other thing is is that while... First of all, I think Rutger Hauer is a far better choice to play this kind of character than Sean Bean. 
that Sean Bean was he did his best and I quite like him as an actor but it's not quite it's not quite the right part for him also in the original film they just did a much better they did a much better job of kind of filming him and filming the action he pops up suddenly he's following him he's keeping an eye on him he pops up where he's least expected and and there's a, there's a scene where there's a really good scene where he's he's been thrown out of the car and he gets up and the camera in the original film looks at him and it's just filmed from underneath him and he stands up with the sky behind him and he looks really scary and in the new film they just they just put the camera on Sean Bean and he stands there looking like someone who's just fallen over and that's the difference between doing this story well and badly it's just these little touches that just need to be done the interrogation scene in the original film is pretty good the interrogation scene in this film is shite and it's just it, it's it, it would have been unnecessary and then it was badly done so it's it's a double whammy of shitness here. Yeah, it was the thing is I like I actually like the idea of of the hitcher. It's I'm not a big fan of horror films, but it does seem like it worked better in 1986 and they did it badly then, so why would you do it again now? Um the thing is I don't think they did it badly then. They did it they did it trashy. It's a trashy film that it didn't see a great deal of business in the cinema and everyone watched it on home video. It was one of those films you go, oh, I've got the hitcher. Let's get together at someone's house and watch it late at night on home video. It's a trashy film. It's not meant to be high quality, but it works for what it is. Do you know what I mean? But it's already been it's already been done for what it is, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Although I didn't hate it as much as the other remakes because I'm not a big fan of horror films in general, so I wasn't mm. too... Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this wasn't... A, a a desecration of a truly great movie. It was just every era's got its exploitation films. You don't need to remake other eras' exploitation films. Just it's just not. It's just lazy. It's really lazy. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're looking at the top films from our respective years of birth. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info and the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. I'm just reading out. I'm just reading out loud. Why can't I read out loud? Okay.